Alrighty, we are back. Welcome one, welcome all, welcome Richard. Hey, good to be here. <laughs> um, so I assume you've read the new installation of the Twitter files, or haven't you? No, I have. What's your take? Uh, this one is more interesting. I thought the first one was a little bit overrated. I mean, I don't think we learned anything from the... Um, you know, they suppressed the uh, New York Post story. We knew that. Like, just, you know, the fact that they talked about it, there was no, like, smoking gun or something like, you know. It's like, that's, like, sort of what you expect how it would have happened. Um, this one is more interesting because there's direct quotes of them, you know, lying about shadow banning. And we knew this was, we knew this was, you know, this we knew this was false, too. I mean, there's a website you can go to and you can check if you're shadow banned. I mean, that's still around. And so, like, obviously, like, there were there have been times, it's not the case now, but there were used to be times when you would search my name and it would not show up in the search bar, or I would be in, like, you know, like, ghettoized in the show more replies section. It wasn't like, it would go away, it would come and it would go. I don't know if you've had that experience, too. But, but, um, that's... Not that I know of, I don't think I was ever ghettoized in the sense of being put I into that... I think your blue check hide reply section. Even, yeah, I think I think it, I think the blue check probably insulates me from that. Yeah, so I had so I had that I had that problem. Uh, you know, it would come and go. It was never it was never permanent. Um, and uh, so yeah, I mean, we know they do this, and like you know, it's like and, and I, I, I listened to J- Jack Dorsey say uh, we do it based on uh, behavior, not content. So it's like you're spamming or you're harassing people, but like, you know, I don't spam and I don't harass people. So, you know, I don't know why that would happen to me. And people I know who don't spam or harass people also got thrown into, uh, into the, you know, the, the show more reply section. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And it's like, it, it's interesting to uh, see like, you know, what the page looks like. Um, and, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, stuff we didn't know. Like, you know, they had some people, don't let them show up and, like, trending. Don't let show their tweets show up trending. That's interesting. We didn't, we didn't know that happened. Uh, and Musk's tweet, like, uh, just la- in the last, you know, 20 minutes or so. Um, which one? He's going to, uh, Twitter is working on a software update that will show you your true account status. So you'll, you will know clearly if you've been shadow banned, the reason why and how to appeal. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're going to, they're going to make a change here. So yeah, this is, uh, you know, Musk is, I mean, I think he's doing a great job. I mean, I think this is, this is good. This is great. We want the transparency. We want the relatively more free speech. I mean, I've, you know, there's a cost to it. I've noticed a lot of stupid, you know, nasty people, on, uh, particularly on the right, like, the, the what they go after me for is usually, like, vaccine stuff, which I keep, like, sort of, you know, like, uh, trolling them on, and I think there's a little more of that, uh, but, yeah, there's, um, yeah, and so, I mean, this will be cool, I mean, this will be, there'll be more transparency here, they won't be able well, to do this. the fallacy in the denials in the past that shadow banning or any kind of de-amplification was ever done on the basis of content rather than behavior lies in what we now know was the operating philosophy of at least this high-ranking so-called head of global safety, Yoel Roth, and presumably others, or definitely others within sort of the upper echelons of Twitter, 
which is that they view certain content content as intrinsically harmful, right? So you, Richard Hanania, can say that I've never harassed anyone, but they view that even if you have not overtly sought to harass anyone or directly, you know, provoked anyone, yeah, that the content said. of what you're saying, the content of what you're saying, can still be construed as harassment given their philosophies. So that's. That's the, the fallacy in, in the, the way that they've tried to deny that they were doing this previously. Um, just quickly on the initial Twitter release, Twitter files release that Taibi did. I mean, I saw so many people trying to dismiss it as not a smoking gun or not a bombshell. Since when is information evaluated for its newsworthiness or notability on the basis of whether it's a, quote, smoking gun, like it had to be the final shoot a drop that led to the resignation of Richard Nixon or something. I mean, that's such a ridiculous standard to hold it to. It was just an introductory sort of entry into these files. And actually, if you did read it in an open-minded way and in a way that you're not just trying to automatically discount it as a, quote, nothing burger, there were a couple of really notable parts, including that Yoel Roth, who's now sort of the central starring figure in this saga it seems he when they were first deliberating whether to impose you know pretty unprecedented censorship action on the new york post article in 2020 around hunter biden just straight up admitted that they didn't have a factual basis for doing it um in the internal emails but they were going to go ahead with it anyway but we know that. Um, that's we, a pretty... we, knew that. we knew that, though. I mean, just because it's well, Yoel Roth. We didn't, no, we didn't, we didn't know that. We didn't know yeah. that in particular. And even if we – and either way, if it sheds additional light or provides new information on a major media scandal, that's significant in its own right. On top of that, we, we didn't know that um, Jim Baker – I mean, you could have maybe inferred this, but that's why it's nice to get information actually fleshing stuff out. That's, just, that's kind of what the – WikiLeaks emails have, do, have done over the course of various dumps, particularly throughout 2016. People would say, oh, this is nothing burger. We knew all this already. And they would discount that, you know, filling in the gaps of knowledge around certain events was at all useful. Um, we didn't know that Jim Baker, this former FBI general counsel who was like neck deep in all kind of Russiagate malfeasance and chicanery, who then got poached by Twitter in 2020 and became one of their top lawyers. We didn't know that he was directly involved in the deliberations around whether to censor the Hunter Biden material. So that's also notable. And I think if you're like just instinctively inclined to discount it as not notable, that speaks to sort of your own bias. And particularly if you're in the media, I'm not accusing you of this, <laughs> Richard, but I mean, there's some people in the media who wanted to reflexively dismiss it because they have these grievances on like a meta level against Taibi or Barry Weiss or just the manner in which Musk has orchestrated this and they don't like Musk at all having taken over Twitter. So it's like it's all kind of ancillary um, grievances that they're seem to be they seem to be primarily motivated by rather than a sort of impartial assessment of the material. They are. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just uh the lack of self-awareness, you know, is is extreme. I mean, you know, these people, to a large extent, lack self-awareness. But you know, they to treat this like like nothing. I mean, the idea that like 
private companies like can do whatever they want like that's the foundation of like liberalism like since when like since when is they like you know uh private companies corporations can make whatever decisions they want and like nobody has a right to say anything about it like no like the entire point of liberalism is the opposite they believe in campaign finance reform right they don't like citizens united they don't think corporations have to be choice they like civil rights laws that tell corporations what to do um so yeah there i mean it's just it's just amazing and then like when elon buys it it goes back to, you know, they go back to sort of their natural state of not thinking corporations can do what they want. And it's like, why is this one? This is why is this one man able to make these decisions? So, yeah, I mean, you go crazy if you sort of like just see how just how little like, you know, attempts to be reasonable or fair that there are like some people can say I can respect if some people say, OK, it's not a big if someone has a consistent position, it's like a private company. It's not that big of a deal. Like, OK, like some people do have that position. That's fine. But just to like go back and forth, like it's such an obvious way, like depending on who owns it is just, you know, it's just incredible. Well, even the most you know staunch libertarians, I think, who do have a consistent position on private corporations being able to, quote, do whatever they want, I don't think would then say that it means private citizens can't criticize the practices of the private corporation. Yeah, but nobody says, nobody says they can't, you can't criticize them. I mean, uh, liberals aren't saying you can't criticize them. You can't. Or it somehow like renders obsolete or it, it renders moot the criticisms one might raise about the practices of the corporation. I mean, the better argument you could, I mean, you could say is like, you know, the bigger deal, which anyone would have to, I think, you know, any fair-minded person, libertarian, whatever, will say, okay, the, you know, there's government pressure, like, the, you know, this is this is pretty common. Uh, then you have like the Biden campaign, which people thought was going to become, you know, the the administration. Uh, they're doing it like when they're, you know, Biden as a candidate is a private actor, but, you know, he's going to be president soon, right? So it's like, you know, it's like government, it's sort of government. So, I mean, that is like from a libertarian perspective, even, even that is a problem. But no, there's no like, you know, and like, I think the way, I mean, I think the way they look at it is probably like there's so much misinformation and dangerous stuff like that conservatives or right wing people complain about, like that the old Twitter regime was like not, maybe not perfect, but, you know, close enough because it got like all the dangerous stuff the QAnon and anti-vaxxer or whatever um but yeah there's no you know there's no attempt to sort of like fairly deal with the concerns of people who don't like you know the way it was yeah i mean even the whole sort of tangent about whether the first installment of the twitter files was a bust because Taibbi even himself seemed to admit that there was no direct government intervention that spurred the imposition of censorship on the New York Post regarding the Hunter Biden laptop story. Um, even that whole tangent was fallacious because it wasn't the point. I mean, the whole reason Taibbi made that acknowledgement because is because he was trying to show that there was a whole structure already in place that rendered unnecessary the need for there to be like blatant overt instructions given by some state official for Twitter to take that censorship action. Yoel Roth, who's the head of global safety at Twitter, said that he had been in weekly meetings with the FBI, with the Department of Homeland Security, with members of the intelligence community, quote unquote, where he had already been warned to be on the lookout for supposedly hacked material 
relating to Hunter Biden. So it wouldn't have been necessary for him to be instructed to take this action because he had already been primed to do so by state intervention. Um, so for people to dismiss the significance of that because they want to, you know, score a cheap shot on Taibbi or whatever, it's just nonsensical. It shows that they're motivated primarily by just nursing these weird meta grievances against media operators they don't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder where this is all going. I wonder, like, you know, is it gonna, is it, you know, is it gonna matter in the in the end? So, like, you know, like it's it's because so, like, Barry Wise has this thing, and it's like, okay, their their uh, Charlie Kirk was like on a blacklist, right? The Charlie Kirk, you look at him, it says on there that he has one point nine million followers. So, like, whatever they were doing to oppress Charlie Kirk, like it didn't. Yeah, great when I saw the Charlie much, Kirk like, thing, I thought to myself, oh, well, I kind of agree with that one. <laughs> yeah, like we've seen enough of him. I mean, yeah, there's proof two point three. I mean, like what he would have what two point three instead of one point nine million if they did it. And then lives of TikTok, which also, but like, got huge. I mean, under the old uh, regime. Um, so like whatever they're doing, it's like, you know, it probably smothers like the smaller accounts, but like, seems like, you know, the famous people, it seems like they do get their message out there and maybe, maybe it doesn't matter. And so maybe in the end, this is just all like for nothing, like, okay, like some people get amplified a little more and some people get amplified a little less and we just get used to it. I don't know. Like maybe this is all just, it doesn't matter in the end. Well, if Musk actually follows through, it's what he claims he's going to do. It just makes it a transparent process. Then that would solve a lot of the problems because one of the problems was just the inherent suspiciousness yeah. of them claiming that they have this neutral policy and they're not doing things that they're clearly doing and there's no political motive in these content moderation policies when there obviously is and they even admit to it in private. Um, if they just got rid of that whole pretense of – phony sort of impartiality where done exists, that would solve, you know, a pretty high percentage of the problem, I would I thought, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's fun. I, mean, I thought maybe this will go away as an issue because it'll all be transparent, but, like, no, because now liberals will be mad that it's, uh, uh, you know, they're not censoring enough. So it's going to be an issue no matter what. If it's censoring a lot, like conservatives will be mad. If liberals, uh, if, you know, liberals are, uh, if they're not censoring, liberals are going to be mad. So, I don't know, but like for the rest rest of us, like me and you, like maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't matter. Like maybe it doesn't matter. Like I, I that's what like I got from the Barry Weiss thing. Like oh, Charlie Kirk, they're oppressing Charlie Kirk, and you know, he's still Charlie Kirk. I'm like, you know, I mean, what like what's the what was the, you know, what was the difference in the end? Maybe maybe nothing. Maybe it just wasn't they weren't putting their that much of their thumb on the scale. Well, I mean, I think there's a reason why the first example she gave is this. Stanford professor Jay Bhattacharya, I always yeah. mispronounced that, who is literally yeah. put on something that they called explicitly a quote blacklist for well, yeah, what Charlie conduct Charlie. exactly? I mean, what did what did this Stanford professor who, yes, had a sort of had a non orthodox view of COVID policy? What did he do that actually caused him to be placed on what Twitter itself calls a blacklist? Is basically impugning people in private. For causing what Yoel Roth calls, quote, harm. Yeah. So, I mean, I do actually think it actually, it, it can be pretty insidious. Yeah, and insidious. I, if I were, if I were Barry West, I probably would have counseled her not to even mention Charlie Kirk because his inanity sort of distracts from the core, uh, you know, substantive noteworthiness of this practice because 
nobody who's intelligent should probably sympathize with Charlie Kirk, and therefore probably not wouldn't care that much if he's blacklisted. Um, but somebody like Jay Baratraya, however you pronounce his name, um, you know, that should actually generate significant yeah. I mean, but concern like, you know, as to the propriety has, of that action. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not propriety. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's bad. But the question is, did it matter, right? So Jay Prabhupada, whatever he is, has 250,000 Twitter followers right now. I don't know what he had before, but he's, he got a, he had a reach, right? So it's like, I don't know, like what he had. Well, like sure, but what was the purpose of them followers? adding him to, to the quote, trends blacklist? Like? I don't know, just because they had too many employees and they, they needed something to do. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, it must have, had, must have had some practical impact, right? They must have had something, but like how much? Because a lot of these people got huge anyway. We'll see now. Maybe they'll maybe they'll take off and like Charlie Kirk instead of two million followers will have ten million and like you know this uh, Jay Bachataria you know will get like you know a lot all these all these uh, Ukraine accounts and you see this like Julia Davis and these like Ukraine people they're all commiserating because their impressions are going down uh, and it's just like you know I think it's probably not Elon Musk it's probably just you know people are caring less about the Ukraine war. Well, I don't. I actually yeah. don't think that's true. I mean, I think. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of things. But there was definitely, and Yoel, Yoel Roth more or less admitted this indirectly. You know, there was a whole sprawling, deliberate, artificial amplification of these pro-Ukraine accounts back during the beginning of the war. That's why you got that guy um, Ilya Poromenko or whatever his name is. You know, the supposed defense reporter for the. Kiev Independent, which just magically came into existence like two months before, thanks to seed money from this European Union fund. Um, he was radically amplified arbitrarily by Twitter, um, you know, technicians. And got and the, over the course of like 10 days, got 1.2 million followers or something absurd. Now, that wouldn't have was, happened this, on its own. This came, this came out, they were doing, they were doing this to... Uh, they, they, well, they announced it. They announced it that, that that they're elevating Ukraine voices, or you know, they're they're intentionally raising the profile algorithmically of they just, designated they, they, pro-Ukraine. The yeah, they announced, they announced it. I, I missed that. I missed this. This was the really. Uh, I mean, I could find these specific examples of when they said this, but yeah, I mean, they did, and it was obvious. Also, just if you looked at what was being elevated. Now, I'm not denying that there could be organic sentiment behind it as well. But, you know, yeah. it's a combination. Um, so, yeah, I've also seen people in that sort of sector of Twitter complaining recently that they feel like they're being arbitrarily stifled or uh, they're not getting as much engagement as they had before. You'd expect, you'd expect that anyway just because, like, the you had the Kherson right before uh, Musk bought Twitter. Uh, around the time there was Kherson, right? So it was like the beginning of the war was big. Then the, uh, the, uh, not, not even Kherson, the uh, Kharkiv offensive. You know, the Kharkiv, right? And nobody, nobody cared. By Kharkiv, nobody cared that all that much. Uh, so it was like that big, you know, push where Ukraine got all that territory back. Like, Twitter, like, erupted into madness. And that was that week they thought me and you were, like, in hiding. And I was, like, <laughs> yeah. right. I, I was off Twitter for three days. And was, I meant that I was, hi- I was hiding because I was yeah, so like, ashamed. Was commiserating with Putin, yeah. And, and so the, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it, like, I just think that was, like, the peak of, like, you know, it was like the first peak was like the start of the war. And then like, that was like the second peak, right? And like, uh, and then, you know, I think they would lose, you know, these Ukraine people. They're going to, they're not going to be this big forever because like people are not going to care about Ukraine. 
Well, I remember you, I remember you and I talking. We go even go check the archive potentially, but like you and I be, would be talking in June or something, right? Of this year, where you would say, "Oh, you know, the attention has peaked. People don't care as much anymore. And what are you going to do?" And then there's another peak, you know. So, I mean, I who's to say what kind of peaks I, I, are in yeah, the future? Who knows? I think that um, you know it's interesting. I think if if Ukraine has like a big offensive, I think you could you could get it. But it, I think it would be it would be less than the the one that we had over the summer. And what's actually happening now? It's not like nothing is happening. It's like Ukraine is suffering a lot. Like you know the uh, the civilian suffering due to these uh, more successful attacks on the infrastructure. You know, people don't want the like the the black pill news that seems on Ukraine. Like if it's, if they get the white pill news, they'll uh, you know they'll really go crazy about that. But yeah, that, it's really sort of black pill about Ukraine. Like the the, the you know the territory is like stagnant. Uh, the, the, you know, the, like nobody's like gaining or losing much that much territory, but just like the civilians are suffering a lot, and that's just like you know, there's not a lot of interest there. That could be like the war, like from here on out. So. Uh, well, I can't tell who's being who's being blackpilled over what at this point because if I look at what Anatoly Carlin and his compatriots are saying, they've been blackpilled for like months over the incompetence and like yeah. disreputability of Ru- the Russian military and of Putin personally. I Meaning, they think that he doesn't actually have the desire to see it through to, toward the complete victory that they had envisioned. So are the, so they're blackpilled, and also I guess other people are blackpilled about basically just the immiseration of Ukraine. So everybody's just blackpilled overall. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not because it's not. Uh, I mean, well, but Carlin is smarter than most of the people who are just like Ukraine. You know, they're just like you know the the regular people who are caught up don't know anything, right? Because because Carlin can see like. You know, he could just look at the long-term trends. He could be, like, you know, if you're, if you're like, if there are very dumb Russian people, and I don't know if there are very dumb pro-Russian people that are on Twitter, I think those people get bad. I think, like, someone with Carlin has a little more of a profile, so maybe he doesn't. But, like, those people might be happy. Oh, you know, we're attacking Ukrainian infrastructure. We're still going to, you know, we're, they could get off on that and think we're going to win. Uh, but, by the way, the... Um, uh, somebody asked me. Uh, somebody sent me a DM. Taylor Lorenz, Lorenz called. They said called out Ben Collins today, and they wanted us to discuss. I don't know what this is. Do you know what this <laughs> no. is? Oh, I saw somebody mention that. I, I thought they were just like joking, or I didn't know what even what it was in reference to. So I guess I have to look it up. Um, I'll try to find it. I have to. That means I have to go into incognito mode because uh, Taylor Lorenz. Uh, actually, yeah, the ago. person said. The person sent me a. Uh, the person sent me a uh, uh, photo. Uh, yeah, because Taylor Lorenz blocks me, so of course I don't see that. Uh, it's an issue of representation. Big news orgs apply no trans people. And like, okay, yeah, like they're writing in their stupid, boring style, and it's hard to even. Uh, yeah, if you look at Taylor Lorenz on December 8th, that's today. Uh, so, like, so, okay, so I, I, I get the gist of what's going on. So, Ben Collins was like, you remember that thing where he's like, oh, Everyone has to, uh, uh, you know, pick a side. Like, you have to be brave. Don't be afraid of getting out Breitbart for saying trans. Right. And he made up fake information about one of the Colorado Springs mass shooting victims and just declared him LGBT. Yeah. And he only had – the club was his only safe space. And, the, yeah, and so he re-upped, he re-upped that today. And then Taylor Lorenz is basically telling him people – don't have representation and they feel unsafe and like you shouldn't like shame them for not speaking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm looking at it now. Um, 
It's a, being able not to care about being on Breitbart is a huge right. privilege that pretty much only straight white men have. Trans people, women are punished tonight, career opportunities. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yes, this is such like. I mean, this is hilarious because Ben Collins is trying to do this whole like courageous breaking of the fourth wall where he's addressing why the media has to be more aggressive in like standing up for these marginalized communities and Taylor Lorenz is criticizing him for ironically not being yeah. mindful enough of his privilege in this area. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they can never yeah. win. Taylor Lorenz is such a, um, you know, the Washington Post is like, you know, really the opinion stuff. The tech reporting is like terrible everywhere. It's like it's in its own world. Like you look at some of the other reporting, it looks more sane. But like I don't know. And like, she's not even an opinion reporter. No, well, she's I know. not even she's an a, opinion journalist. Yeah, yeah. She's no, no, just I'm a saying, straight journalist. I'm saying, I'm saying tech. Yeah, all the tech reporters. The New York Times is a guy I think named Ryan Mack or something. I well, he's there. independent. I, he's I think he's independent. Mike Isaac I think is the New York Times guy. But yeah, uh, they're all they all have the same mentality. Yeah, I mean, just like you know, just like. Yeah, I mean, they're not opinion people, but they're like, you know, they're just, it's the most biased. I mean, it's the most biased coverage there is. I mean, I don't think there's any other, like, race, probably, but, like, you know, there's, like, very few that are like it. And, like, Taylor Reds is just, like, a parody of, like, a I know, she's a parody person. of her. She's a parody of herself. I mean, it's so weird. I mean, I, I mentioned, I've mentioned this before, but, you know, I met Taylor Reds briefly once and just had a normal conversation with her. She just seemed sane you know, relatively friendly, and I had read a couple of things that she did on The Atlantic that were somewhat interesting because it was, like, corners of maybe internet culture that I wouldn't have been aware of otherwise, and I just wouldn't have thought that she would have gone so berserk. And now, like, every she just is constantly popping up in the most ridiculous context where, I mean, I even read an article she did recently about a college journalist, I think it was at the University of Arizona, who wrote an article that was critical of like a stu another student at the college who was a TikTok influencer and you know was supposed to be modeling himself after this guy Andrew Tate who got banned so like meaning toxic masculinity or whatever and the way that this was structured the way that Lorenz structured the article it was just so just like you know self parodically infantile that you almost wonder if it's like conscious on her part at some point, but apparently it's not. I get the, I get the performance artist sort of vibe from her. I, I mean, I don't know. It's very, it's hard to say. It's, it, it is hard to say. Most of these people, I, I don't think that I think they're just like not self-aware, but she's like so over the top. She's almost a parody of herself. So I don't know. I think there's a part of her that just sort of enjoys this. Yeah. Um, back to Ukraine. Did you um, read the Wall Street Journal article I sent you about yep. the uh, with? Yeah. So speaking of black pill, I mean, I don't know how anyone can read this first paragraph of this Wall Street Journal article and not be quote black pilled about the trajectory of the war, okay? Or at least the trajectory of the stated U.S. policy. Which maybe I'm a broken record on this, but the stated U.S. policy is that Ukraine essentially gets to unilaterally set the strategic decision-making parameters around maybe not every military tactic that the U.S. will provide to it or, like, every piece of equipment that will be provided to it, but the broad strategy, in including when to negotiate or when not to and many hugely consequential decisions, it's all being supposedly deferred to 
Ukraine to decide on their own behalf, and then the U.S. will loyally, you know, back them to the hilt. And just, let me just read out this first paragraph. People could look this up. It's from today in the Wall Street Journal. Ukraine's foreign minister called on the country's allies not to fear a possible breakup of the Russian state as a consequence of the war, while defending Kiev's right to strike targets on Russian soil and vowing that Ukraine would never accept a peace settlement that leaves occupied lands, including Crimea, under Moscow's control. Now, that's like, okay, tell me that six months ago, maybe even three months ago, but definitely at the start of the war, if you had read that, that wouldn't have been mind-boggling in how extreme it sounds. Yeah. yeah Break up I the mean... Russian state? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the Ukrainians are going to do what they're going to do, right? Like, I think they it makes sense to them, like, to them for them to say, uh, you know, Russia's, like, knocking out all their electricity. Like, they're going to say, okay, like, you know, what moral obligation do we have not to... Uh, not to hit Russia, right? So, like, that makes sense for them. Like, you know, it makes sense they would say they want the uh, Crimea back. Uh, that was, you know, their territory. Uh, so that makes sense. Um, I, I don't, like, you know, I don't, I'm not shocked by uh, that. Um, you know, the question is, what's sort of, what's the Biden plan or what's the Biden endgame? You know, and, and I, what's the Ukrainian endgame too? Like, you know, that they say this, but like I used to think, I mean, until like very recently, but like I'm starting to sort of shift that this was like a negotiating point. They're going to, you know, just they have to say this, right? They have to keep the morale up at this point and then they can negotiate later. Uh, you know, I'm starting not to believe that. I'm starting <laughs> to believe that they truly... You, they, you they would, truly you would think somebody be. somewhere at some point would actually hint at that as being the objective, if that were actually the objective. What? Well, you, if that were actually the, the objective, meaning to just have negotiating leverage and to keep the morale up, you think somebody would actually hint at that being the objective at some point, rather than... Saying maybe, the exact yeah. opposite, which is what this, you know, defense uh, foreign minister said today. Well, maybe, well, maybe, maybe that's. But yeah, I, I think you're right. You can't like, you can't like just say, you know, you're absolute, absolute, absolute. It actually makes it harder to negotiate. It doesn't help you in negotiating later because you're saying you're you've closed off. You know, if you're threatening like, to break up the Russian state, you think that's a good negotiating tactic <laughs> with Russia? Yeah. No, they want to win. They're in this. They're in this to win. Uh and uh, yeah, I mean, the question is whether Biden, you know, what's Biden? Because yeah, you're you're right that like they really are not leaving themselves an out, and like states can, states can do this. I mean, states can, you know, can like Viet North Vietnam. I mean, they could just, you know, they could just sort of stick with the goal like the Taliban in Afghanistan, uh, with enough resolve. You know, you can sort of go for an ambitious goal and maybe maybe accomplish it. And it's particularly um, salient with Russia, right? Because it's not as though they don't have in living memory an example of when their state actually did dissolve and which Putin has basically structured seemingly his entire career around, you know, rectifying the ill effects of that uh, yeah. dissolution. But Ukraine is not going to control. I mean, Ukraine is not going to control whether Russia falls apart. That's going to be, uh, you know, internal an internal matter. So, yeah, they say that. I mean, I don't know if that, that matters, but, you know, you, it's like the, um, you know, I, I think it is a side. That comment is important, like, just as a side 
I think again backing up how serious Ukraine is, right, about getting everything back because they're 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 sticking out this maximus claim. Oh, Russia should we should get everything. Russia should collapse. You know, no negotiations. Yeah, I think I think yeah, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced, even in this conversation, that you know, this we should take them at their word. Well, yeah, I mean that, that's sort of my operating assumption in most cases. That I mean. Uh, unless you have some blatant reason not to take about their word, and this doesn't even apply solely to Ukraine, but you know, leaders, and even Mir- this is sort of Mearsheimer's thesis as well, leaders uh, of states or state officials generally don't actually lie that much about their own intent, um, at least to one, uh, to one another. So unless there's some blare- glaring reason why what they're saying ought to be discounted, then you know, the working assumption should be that it actually reflects their true intent. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't know. Uh, you know, like, but one thing that's interesting to think about is like, okay, so the Crimea, I mean, we're all like jumping ahead to Crimea, right? Like, we're, we're assuming there's like some point, like, you know, Ukraine's going to get everything up to, up to that point. Um, and we have to think if that does happen, um, Ukraine will have won a lot. It, w- it would be a bunch of military victories, right? So Ukraine takes back all these other cities. It's advancing. And then, like, does it negotiate at that moment? Like, that's, like, harder to, like, even no matter what anyone's intentions are, there's going to be overwhelming demand within Ukraine and I think within the American establishment to keep going. So, you know, just e- even if, like, they didn't mean it at this point, I think they do mean it. Like, even if they didn't mean it at this point, it's going to be even, it's going to be even, it, it, like, it, it would be hard to stop at that point. Uh, so, yeah, that's every reason, you know, we have every reason to think that if it does get to that point, Ukraine's just going to keep going and the U.S. is going to support them. Yeah, and maybe they're right that Russia actually is not particularly willing to negotiate on principle at this point. Yeah. Um, if, if, it, if the stakes of the conflict are actually as existential as Putin articulated in that, you know, now infamous September speech, then, you know, it's a little bit strange to imagine that that could be conducive, you know, based on the stakes that he laid out to a negotiated settlement where you're kind of like, you know, just accepting <laughs> this um, perpetual, you know, uh, civilizational threat to Russia right on its border. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's no indication that the Russians want to uh, negotiate, although, although they're, I mean, the, I don't know. I, the Russians seem, you know, just, just just sort of try to read the tea leaves. Seems a little more open to it than, uh, you know, Ukraine. Like, Russia has, yeah. like, downgraded... They claim that... They, they sometimes nominally claim that they're open to negotiations. And they've and they've downgraded their objections a lot. I mean, their uh, objectives a lot. Like, they, you know, there used to be denazification and, you know, uh, you know, basically regime change and, like, Kherson and, like, all these areas they annex. And it's becoming more and more, like... Well, have they? Yeah. I mean, it's always mixed, right? Because sometimes there's indications that they have downgraded the objectives, but then, you know, you'll have Medvedev making a maximalist statement about how Russia intends to seize the entirety of Ukraine. So yeah. it's hard to ever tell, really, what the objective is yeah. at, any given, at any given time. Yeah. Although, I mean, did you see the? So you, I mean, you did see the uh, uh, the story about the cruise missiles. Like they're still making cruise missiles, right? Yeah. So it's uh, you know, it's not yeah. That so appar- apparently, you know, they had there was some weapons um, analysis team that was deployed to Kiev 
recently, and they analyzed the sort of uh, you know remnants Zero of a missile, yeah, that had been that had struck, and they yeah they looked at the serial number and they concluded that one of the recent rounds of missile strikes had been uh, the missiles had been produced within just the past few months, uh, which suggests that the sanctions are not <laughs> impeding or don't seem to be impeding the yeah. ability of Russia to produce new missiles, despite the weekly warnings or the weekly sort of statements that come out of like the U S or UK intelligence services or these think tanks where, you know, Russia's running low on its supplies yeah. and they're not going to have, you know, they're going to run out, you know, within a month. And Never this is a big, to come to pass. Yeah. And this is a big deal because the, you know, the, my view from before we do this was that, you know, Russia has this limited supply of missiles, and Ukraine is just getting more and more uh, technology and better technology. But if Russia can indefinitely create new cruise missiles, uh, and Ukraine also gets American technology, it's sort of like there's a uh, there's a symmetry here, and like you know, there's sort of like a symmetry, but it's like a weird symmetry, and like that Russia can hit like Ukrainian uh, civilian stuff, like you know, indefinitely. And, Ru- and Ukraine, like, the stuff that Ukraine's getting is more useful directly on the battlefield, like this high bars and what they want, you know, what they want on top of that. Um, so it's a weird situation. I mean, it seems to suggest probably still, you know, advantage Ukraine, you'd rather have the battlefield. But, yeah, Russia could, I mean, Russia could make it very, very painful, <laughs> painful for them. And it's sort of, yeah, they're just going to have to sort of bear through it. Yeah. And you mentioned before about how, you know, the really decisive issue is what is Biden's position on some of these maximalist demands that seem to be more and more emanating out of Ukraine. And yeah, obviously that's a major issue, but it's almost more and more irrelevant, it would seem, if the Biden administration technically is saying that it's not going to give these... HIMAR missiles of a certain um, reach, meaning missiles that can be shot however many miles. And there was even a Wall Street Journal report about how they apparently, the Biden administration modified the HIMAR uh, launchers to prevent Ukraine from on its own inserting missiles that can go a certain number of miles. So that may be true. But how relevant is that if simultaneously it's the U.S. is still basically single-handedly subsidizing the war, you know, operationally coordinating, funding, arming the war. And that enables Ukraine to come up with these improvised drone devices where they can attack targets 300 miles inside Russia, you know, just, you know, on the periphery of Moscow, which happened this week. I mean, that... I mean, so how much does it matter any longer if the Biden administration on the, is on the one hand insisting that it's not going to provide these long-range missiles, but on the other, it's still providing all the resources needed for Ukraine to make the long-range missiles on its own? I mean, is that like – at one point, is that not a meaningful distinction anymore? Yeah. I mean, yeah, so Ukraine – I mean, this was the – these uh, attacks on the bases this week. I mean, they went hundreds of miles in. Um, including on a base you know, that so, houses part of the Russian strategic nuclear uh, bombers. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, so I don't, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, Ukraine is going to develop more of this capabilities. I think probably over time, they'll get the drones, they'll get the technology, they'll, they'll find it somehow. 
Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, this is a weird thing where both sides, so it's like, yeah, so it's like not like, it's not, it's not just that Russia can hurt Ukraine civilians. Ukraine to a limited extent can hit inside Russia. Um, uh, you know, they can't do enough, they can't knock out the power apparently in, you know, Russian cities or anything like that. Uh, but it is, you know, it is a consideration going forward and yeah i mean both sides sort of like neither side is backing down and both sides are sort of uh increasing their ability to damage the other side and so yeah this is going to be pretty bad and go on for a while yeah all right uh one one more point quickly and then we'll go to the callers (laughs) um but just because the house of representatives passed the ndaa today meaning the annual pentagon budget with you know all kinds of other goodies sort of stacked onto it and it's just amazing to me how little attention some of the most significant provisions are receiving um you know the top line figure got some attention because obviously it's the most expensive defense budget ever passed which you know has part to do with partly to do with inflation but also partly to do with the expansion of the the um, sort of scope of what the Pentagon now is setting out to do with Russia and China being these, you know, peer or near peer competitors in this sort of like ungodly alliance. Um, And Republicans seem to only be talking about the fact that there was a provision put in that removed the vaccine requirement for active duty troops, which is okay, I guess fine when significant enough. But number one, you had an amendment that had been championed for months on a bipartisan basis, of course, by the ranking me- uh, the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Jack Reed, and the ranking member, James Inhofe, after whom the entire NDAA this year is named, to uh, drastically, basically upend Pentagon procurement policy, meaning the kinds of contracts that are issued two defense firms to, to provide munitions and other equipment for the Pentagon. Um, basically, what they're now allowing for is that any material that's produced by the American defense sector for Ukraine, or even just tangentially for Ukraine, like this even applies to so-called allies and partners who are themselves giving armaments to Ukraine. Um, so a whole scope of new products now are, can be delivered on the basis of what are essentially no-bid contracts. Um, and are now under this emergency procurement authority that in the past had only ever been invoked with respect to U.S. military operations. Now they're using this emergency procurement authority, which is now going to be in effect until September 2024 at the earliest, um, to basically indefinitely arm Ukraine and by extension probably arm Taiwan as well, even though it's less explicitly um, articulated. But if you look at the fine the uh, you know the fine print it can also be used for Taiwan, so basically the it allows for the conversion of the U.S. defense sector sector into wartime industrial production mode. Um, you have that yeah. on top of that, 
Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've tweeted about this. So if you could look at the look up the thread, um, and I followed it even months ago when it was being contemplated. It just gets no attention. It's amazing. And on top of that, um, Taiwan now for the first time, and this was done largely at the behest of Bob Menendez, who's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So he has a statement out yesterday touting how this was included in the final bill. Taiwan now has a, for the first time, a dedicated like defense initiative, joint defense initiative with the U.S., where um, it's uh, at minimum allowing for $10 billion into this di- direct initiative over the course of five years, but also now... Biden can use presidential drawdown authority to fund or to send weapons directly to Taiwan. It's the same authority he uses to send weapons to Ukraine often. Um, They're going to be full scale. That's the term military drills, joint drills or joint exercises between the U.S. and Taiwan. There's going to be a permanent rotational U.S. military presence in Taiwan. Um, Elaborate training programs. It's everything but a formal abrogation of the one China policy, essentially. Um, and it eerily mirrors the policies that were gradually imposed with respect to Ukraine after 2014. So Taiwan is on a extremely, I mean, they're basically just importing what they did to Ukraine, to Taiwan, almost verbatim with these different training and strategic partnership initiatives and so forth. And um, they're, they're overtly preparing for war. I mean, that's what, that's what Menendez even just said himself in his statement celebrating this. So, I mean, part of me, if I'm not particularly impressed with Republicans bragging about how they got the vaccine requirement removed, because it seems like there's some more important stuff in this bill that just doesn't get mentioned anywhere near as much as it should be. Yeah. Uh, so this procurement thing. I mean, I, I'm looking at your thread. I don't under. I don't understand. It's just is it like a paperwork thing? They're just trying to make it faster. The emergency procurement. Well, yeah. I mean, that's part of the motive for it that they want to speed up and accelerate and expand industrial production in general. Um, but with with these emergency procurement authorities. The, they're able to, you know, they can just give no bid contracts, right? They can give multi year contracts now for basically what Inhofe said was all important munitions, which basically removes it from congressional oversight once the contract is issued. Um, it, it, this is what the defense sector has been agitating for for years because it, it, it um, gives them what they call, you know, um, certainty as to future demand. So, like, the demand is now guaranteed to be there for the long term so they can scale up their industrial how do they production. How do they guarantee the demand? Because it's still a year-to-year thing. So how do they guarantee that? Well, it's not a year-to-year thing anymore. Now they can – now oh. they're this, uh, under this authority, now they can give multi-year contracts. So they can – so Lockheed Martin's in the process now, according to what its vice president said yesterday – of obtaining a multi-year uh, contract for producing various munitions. This includes everything from, you know, the artillery shells to potentially even like the, you know, the HIMARS, the Javelin missiles, et cetera, Harpoon, you know, uh, maritime missiles and, and so on. I mean, the, the point is they're, 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 they're using emergency wartime authorities 
to basically remove regulations around industrial production that when those authorities would only have been used by the letter of the law in the past for American military operations or some American emergency. Now they're do, they're they're invoking emergency powers on behalf of Ukraine to you know radically scale up production in the long term. But they must have had multi-year contracts before, right? They do have multi. Yeah, that's the thing. They have multi-year contracts before, but they have to be done on a they had to be done on a case by case basis. Now there's a whole category of munitions and other material that's presumptively allowed to be. um, It's okay. That 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 multi-year contracts are presumptively allowed for. Is the money appropriated for all those already, or would Congress have? They would just trust Congress to appropriate the money in future years. Well, the NDAA doesn't appropriate the money itself. That's that comes in the budget. This okay. is this giving the uh, this is this just is giving the like legal authorities uh-huh. for the appropriations that come subsequently. Uh huh. Okay. Well, the point is, it's a, it's a significant move. I mean, they've been, the, the 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 defense contractors have been lobbying for this for ages, yeah. and they finally got it. Well, maybe. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe the red tape is stupid. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it's a good policy. I don't know. But no, it's not surprising they're going to be uh, – It's you know, it's not surprising that they're going to be arming Ukraine for a long time. They consider this well, they're not just getting rid of red tape. They're adding they're, – they're just changing the regulatory scheme. Yeah, but they, maybe they would – maybe that's – To convert into would. full wartime production mode yeah, using maybe emergency they authorities. Maybe, they, maybe you classify maybe you classify that as getting rid of red tape. No, I understand. They're trying to manufacture more weapons and – Give it to Ukraine. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not surprised. I mean, this seems like, you know, this seems like not not surprising. Does the money on? Um, you probably know this. Does the money? Uh, also, I mean, it's hardly it's hardly getting rid of red tape to imp- to institute a regulation that allows for certain firms to get no bid contracts. Well, I mean, if bidding is that's like using that. red tape to just um, no, if bidding is if prioritize bidding certain firms. If bidding itself is red tape, then you know then it simplifies the process certainly to do no bidding. But but the uh, but the um, uh, but like you you know this. So the the Ukraine the Ukraine aid is that going to just be so like it does the is the Biden just still rolling out from the previous authorizations for Ukraine aid or do they need more of them? Well. There, there's a small, there's a portion of Ukraine aid that actually is somehow, I'm not even sure of the exact mechanism, um, appropriated within this NDAA. Uh, don't ask me exactly what authority that's based on, but apparently there is a certain amount of funding within this NDAA, even though most of it, most of the bill isn't to do with funding, it's just authorizations. But there is a small a sliver of uh, funding under the... Um, Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, where they're just giving an, uh, appropriating an additional eight hundred million. I don't know how exactly, but they're doing it. Um, but yeah, as of now, they still need to pass the additional supplemental funding bill that's pr- being proposed uh, that's specifically related to Ukraine funding, uh, which is going to be the largest one yet, based on the initial submission by the administration, which I think was for thirty-seven billion. Um, and the biggest one prior to this was in May, which was $32 billion, the initial submission, and then was raised eventually to uh, over 40 So if it's the same sort of schema here, you'd expect it to go to like, you know, mid-40 
uh, mid forties in terms of billions as a supplemental bill, which is like a standalone bill specifically for Ukraine funding. So that's separate from this NDAA, but the NDAA does contain all manner of new authorities that allow for the rapidly accelerated production of uh, weaponry and other material related to Ukraine. So it's a big, I mean, my point is it's a a big step in basically converting the country into wartime industrial production mode. And it seems like nobody is like really being consulted as to whether they want to do that. (laughs) And um, same goes for uh, the Taiwan authorities. So just something to be, I guess, cognizant of because few seem to really be covering it or have even the knowledge necessary to know what to look for in order to cover it. Mm-hmm. They would say we. They would say we are. Right? They would say we are. Sort of. We are uh, uh, talking about it and doing it. I mean, the stuff is being debated. It's being passed by Congress, so it's certainly going through the procedure. No, but I mean these particular provisions, like the enormity of them, isn't being discussed as much as I would argue it probably should be. But yeah, I guess maybe I'm just um, maybe I'm aggrieved at my following particular some semi obscure uh, items and not having the rest of the media agree with me about the significance that I attribute to them. Okay, let's go to callers. Uh, Gator, you're up. Hi, guys. Um, Michael, I'm on this last point, although this isn't necessarily, I don't want to string this out, right? You're, you are absolutely right to raise what you've just raised, and I am absolutely gobsmacked that even if Richard hasn't read the, the references you refer to, I haven't either, but I know exactly what you mean, and I'm amazed that Richard does not detect this. If I can just paraphrase, you're saying that the US, which is not in a state of declared war, has enacted political powers that are only appropriate for being essentially at war in order to eradicate safeguards and mechanisms which are directly responsible for allocating state public money to private defense contractors uh, with with no safeguard or control where we already know how that revolving door of money, resource, power, wealth and influence works. And Richard bats that off and just says, maybe that's uh, maybe that's just uh, red tape that doesn't need to be there. Does he does he not remember what happened with Halliburton in Iraq, where Dick Cheney sat in a room and just said, let's uh, bomb this country. And then we'll no bid allocate the reconstruction to the company that I was the CEO for, which just gave me a $23 million payoff just before I took office. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you're talking about, Richard. Um, so that's what, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, right? By the way, it? one of the beneficiaries of this is inevitably going to be Raytheon on the board of which exactly. the current oh. Secretary of Defense sat. Well, so, I yeah. mean, yeah, I mean, you could assume corruption, but if you take it from the perspective that, you know, whatever you think about the Ukraine policy, uh, they think, you know, they think Ukraine is very, uh, defending Ukraine is important, vital to the American national security interest. You just accept that, like maybe the policy makes sense from that perspective. I don't know. It, just it does make sense. So, so, so is, it does make sense. Isn't there a fundamental, <laughs> isn't, isn't there a fundamental requirement here then that the US has to then tell the world it's technically at war? And who would that be with? Well, it wouldn't be with Ukraine. It would be with Russia. I don't, and I mean, China. I don't know what, 
I don't know what yeah. the requirement says. They have to technically say they're at war. Be they're passing well, in order to, in order government. to in order to enact war based power. I mean, American well, law. They don't have they to, define, they don't have they to say anything. They, want. they don't have to say anything. But conscientious observers should point out the implications. And that's what you're doing, Michael. That's my point. And I'm shocked that the response back from Richard is so 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 low ball, right? Because it's because I know what you mean, and I, and I and, and and I think I do, and this is and this is it, and and it's and it's an open confirmation of what we suspect and know and has proven to be in the past massive open corruption based on a war machine narrative that's what's going on yeah like let, let me give you what they what they do technically declare in this ndaa which is kind of amazing in its enormity and i don't understand why it's not getting any attention really I just gotta find the exact wording. Hold on one second. Um, just what just what you're looking for, Michael. You know why it's not getting attention. It's because that's the way the game works. The media don't say what the what the what the administration and the corporatocracy doesn't want said. That's that's why you're the guy you are, which is sidelined as buggery <laughs> all the time. Because you're the bloke that says the shit nobody wants you to say. So here's here's what here's what Congress is now declaring is the quote statement of policy on Taiwan. So this is not even really this is almost like a sense of Congress, that's what they call it, declaration where it doesn't necessarily connect to any particular policy. It's just what the stated policy is now, supposedly, if that makes sense. Like it's an umbrella declaration. Um, consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act, it shall be the policy of the United States to maintain the capacity of the United States to resist a fate accompli that would just that would jeopardize the security of the people of uh, Taiwan. Fate accompli defined in this section, the term fate accompli refers to the resort to force by the People's Republic of China to invade and seize control of Taiwan before the United States can respond effectively. So here, I mean, it's sort of bizarrely obscurantist language. But it's saying that the United States must maintain the capacity to, quote, respond effectively should China invade and seize control of Taiwan, essentially declaring that the U.S. will go to war with China. I mean, they're not going to put it in that, in that blunt of terms, but I don't know how else to read those sentences. But there's one, there's one also critical factor in that which is that you have to go back and check whether the U.S. has ever publicly recognized that Taiwan is Chinese territory and an internal part of China. And it has done. Right. So what that statement you just read out means is that America is openly saying that it will it will enact war based power like to in order to directly preemptively intervene inside another nation's civil war. That's against the U.N. Charter. Yeah, I mean. The initial policy statements that the U.S. signed on to in the 70s, which affirm that there is one China, meaning that Taiwan Correct. is in the jurisdiction of the People's Republic of China. Correct. Those provisions have never been formally repudiated. They've been sort of modified and added on to and added qualifiers to, but it's never been repudiated. So this, I think, is probably as close as it's ever gotten to an official repudiation. But, of course, they use sort of deflecting and obscure language. But this is very much consistent with what Biden himself has said now several times, where he outright declared that the U.S. will militarily respond in the event of some sort of 
incursion in Taiwan. Now, that was dismissed or that was sort of rationalized by White House officials and they, quote, walked it back and they said, no, look, the policy hasn't changed. Well, this is now very much suggestive that the policy has changed in accordance with, with, with what Biden articulated, which is exactly what you would have expected. Yeah, but also on the back of this, there's one other thing, a massive thing that can come from this. If the U.S. pursues this policy and actually things do escalate along this line with Taiwan, China, the U.N. can be called out for what it is, because what you would expect to see is a full verification of the U.S.'s justification based against the U.N. Charter for preemptive invasion, well, basically invasive war, right? Because what the U.S. would be doing would be saying we're prepared to conduct an act of invasive war because that's what it would do if it intervened in a civil war, right? Without, without the request from either Taiwan, which declares itself independent in a legally recognized way, then, then forms a strategic alliance with the US and then invites the US to protect it from China. If those things don't happen, right, essentially all the US would be doing is invading China, right, which is an illegal, illegal act of war. So if that all goes through the UN and no one in the UN bats an eyelid, that tells you that the UN is both corrupt and directly under ex- ex- excessive favoritist power in, in, power in favor of the US. Well, I mean, the UN is kind of irrelevant anyway. So I, I think that's sort of a side issue, although I don't but discount the significance of it. But I think, you know, what strikes me is that you'd almost think based on how these provisions are being discussed, including by the chief sort of legislative champion, which is Bob Menendez, the key hawkish senator, you almost think that they're attempting to accelerate the timeline toward war. I mean, they're using the exact same uh, tactics and mechanisms that they deployed with regard to Ukraine in the name of supposed deterrence, even though there's every reason to believe, if you just look at in plain words what China has said, about its intent with Taiwan, that these measures are going to provoke a response, right? And that's sort of what the design is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's like the talk about a fait accompli. They're almost speaking of U.S. intervention as though it's a fait accompli, which in turn is going to make it a fait accompli that China is going to do something. I mean, that's why this whole deterrence doctrine just seems like totally incoherent nonsense. And if anything... Far from deterring, it seems like it's intended to produce the opposite effect. But, but yeah, okay. So, but this, but we know that this is happening inside the Russia-Ukraine conflict. This is exactly the the US MO inside that conflict, and and it's now repeating it in China. But there's a big differentiating factor here, which is visible very recently, and it is the question of what, how China and Russia react to the US's provocations. Now, in the case of these drone strikes just inside inside Russian territory, what that does is it greenlights the Russian nuclear weapon doctrine, which says any attack on our nuclear infrastructure, right, our nuclear attack infrastructure also justifies a nuclear response because they just attacked Tupolev 195s, which can deploy the nuclear arsenal in Russia, right? They damage slightly damage the planes. The key thing here is what Russia's doing, which is doing nothing. It's saying, okay, there's been an attack, we've ticked this box, but we're not gonna dump nukes on people. And China, the biggest mistake China would make, probably in my uneducated opinion, is to overreact. And what China will really do is it will continually absorb the bullshit coming out of America until the point that America overextends itself, policy, statement-wise or whatever, 
to the point it's utterly humiliated itself. Because from a forced deployment project perspective, you know, Ritter, McGregor, other people say, if you think about what America can put into the South China Sea and fight with, it's fuck all. Even if you've got 11 carrier battle groups and a load of new nuclear subs, you can't use those nuclear subs because you're starting nuclear war. And China is set up defensively in that area. So you push stuff into its area of operation and you are, you, it doesn't need to be able to attack Japan or invade South Korea or anything. It just needs to destroy everything that comes within weapons range on a defensive basis. And, and, and America cannot compete with that. So China can sit there and go, say what you want until you cross this line. We don't do anything. And then, and then, and that I think is the, is, is going to be happening. I think that's what's going to happen for the next year or 18 months is they're going to soak up the bellicose nonsense from the US for as long as it can. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, part of this NDAA does include a fairly drastic ramping up of the so-called Indo-Pacific presence of the US military. So, you know, you make you could make the argument that they don't have the capacity now to launch any sort of offensive or even be competitive in a potential direct war, but they're clearly preparing for that eventuality uh, in the short to medium term and, you know, now provisioning funds specifically toward that end. So that's a sort of a significant development. All right. Thanks, Gator. No worries, mate. Cheers. Um, Pierre, you're up. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, You know, I, I think that I get kind of annoyed by liberals who are saying this is a complete nothing burger or like say that like, like, you know, just from the beginning, Oh, this is, you know, not relevant. I think Twitter like, files. You mean? Source. Yeah. Oh. Sorry. My bad. Um, but the thing is, and you know, because they're like primary documents and quotes on a relevant topic. Right. <laughs> but like, yeah, but, but well, that's I, a thing. I, I mean, that, sorry to interrupt, but that's the thing that struck me as well. I mean, Taibi, even in the initial thread, and so did Barry Weiss tonight, they're putting out primary source material that people can evaluate for themselves and draw conclusions from. Yeah. So the, yeah, the thing yeah. is, though, is that I, I see a lot on a lot of people on the right who are like kind of indignant that critics are like examining it critically, um, because I think that. I don't know why they're indignant about that. I mean, there's like a pretty big conflict of in, appearance, at least, of conflict of interest in the whole thing. Um, and then I think, you know, liberals have been a bit more nuanced than the right gives them credit for. Like a lot of them have acknowledged that Twitter throttling the New York Post story was an incorrect call. So I don't know. I feel like that there's there's some like um, not as much appreciation of the fact that like liberals are critically examining it. I think there is a big conflict of interest. Um, I don't know what your opinion is on that. Well, what's um, the conflict of interest exactly? Okay, so Taibi didn't disclose the um, conditions. Um, he's not doing it on his own substack, so he's doing it on a Twitter thread. So that would lead me to think that there's some agreement there. Um, and we don't know if it well, was a complete dump. Well, I mean, this was my understanding all along, but Barry Weiss confirmed it, which is that the only condition she said was imposed on her is that the information initially would be reported on Twitter. Now, I don't think that's a particularly egregious 
condition because it's not content based, right? It's not restricting her ability to report on what she has obtained or to um, modify her interpretations or analysis of what she's reporting on. It's simply a so-called condition as to where the reporting is initially going to appear. Now, I would be only be wary, really, of one of these conditions if it actually had bearing on the content of what could be reported, but it doesn't seem to at all. And the idea that, I mean, at least, at least Taibi is transparent about the condition that was a condition being imposed in that respect. Virtually every other, every investigative piece you read or like, cons, uh, an enormous number of media products that you will consume were produced as a result of certain conditions being required by sources, but they're just not disclosed. So the fact that you even know about this condition itself is a testament to the unusual transparency associated with this reporting. That's what's ironic about it. Yeah, but the primary documents weren't leaked by like a whistleblower. It was leaked by the CEO well, of the so company. So what? I mean, did that, did but, that change the content? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the other thing is that I think they need to do a better job of like providing context. Um, and you could say that um, they're just, you know, quoting and, and doing just primary source sourcing. Um, but I think they do need to do a better job of providing context that Elon is doing content moderation as well. And so if, you know, you're not going to disclose the conditions and like, I, I don't know, I, I guess I didn't see the tweet you saw about the only limitation being the, um, the platform, but if, you're not going to provide the context that Elon at heart is doing the same thing that he's releasing documents that's disclosing a uh, content moderation. I think that's a, that's an issue. Um, and the people who are hyping it um, don't seem to care about that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's more he, there's more, I think context and straightforward reporting here on what's going on than you would find in a typical article, the New York times citing sources in a company or citing sources in the Pentagon or something. Uh, right. So, so but it's remarkably transparent by normal. Right. Family. I mean, you well, can read, you can read dozens of articles a day in like the Washington Post and New York Times where anonymous officials are saying stuff and there's no indication given at all about what condition was imposed by those sources, which led to them being quoted anonymously. I even read a political okay. thing a few days ago where some Biden White House official was given an anonymity to basically smear, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters who were objecting to South Carolina being made the first state in the uh, presidential primaries of 2024. So what condition was operative there? They don't disclose it because and the, the only reason why this particular condition is being debated is because, it, like Richard said, it, it's unusually a, a transparent of a process. And just, let me just quote to you what Barry Weiss said. The authors, this was from two hours ago, the authors have broad and expanding access to Twitter's files. The only condition we agreed to was that the material would first be published on Twitter. I'm sorry, I don't view that as egregious at all. Yeah, she's saying okay. more transparent. I mean, I, I, I forgot that. But yeah, she's saying this is the condition. And so they're well, giving the condition yeah. Well, last thing I'll I'll just I'll sign off after this. I just want to make one other observation, though, is if they did have a wide um, tranche of documents and didn't have any other limitations, then I think it's legitimate to ask why Taibbi didn't provide evidence of uh, the Trump campaign or White House um, 
requesting stuff come down. He provided evidence of the Biden campaign doing that. So he had the evidence for it. Why didn't he disclose that? Do we know? Do we know for a fact he had a, that evidence that that exists? Well, I mean, he had evidence for the Trump campaign. Why? I mean, I would assume there's some email. I, I don't know how else um, that would be tracked. Um, do you think? I, I don't know. I, I would think there's something there that would lead him to make that observation. Well, because the, I mean, first, the, the first in, made that comment. Well, because the first installment was dedicated to the internal deliberations around the imposition of unprecedented security, uh, censorship, censorship action, rather, in relation to the Hunter Biden laptop story. So an, an ancillary kind of context-setting point that Tybee makes about how there were also requests for content moderation received from Trump campaign officials, that, that was sort of an ancillary point, right? So I don't... I mean, I like to see whatever... Requests were made by Trump campaign officials as well, but I mean, it's not even really a substantive criticism to say that oh, you you reported on this thing first, but not this other thing that I'm more interested in. I think we have every reason okay. to believe, and even even Musk has said this that eventually, at some point, they're probably going to they're just release the entire archive for public perusal. But you know, obviously, it takes some time to get everything settled and to and structured in terms of its searchability and. Yeah, uh, I guess they're probably going to, you know, redact certain private crazy. information or whatever. So, what I mean, it's not crazy. It's not crazy to think that they may be biased in the sense that they might be more, you know, because just because of Elon's political bias or whatever, to uh, release stuff that looks bad, shows Democrats or liberals or Biden uh, campaign looking bad, and then being more hesitant to uh, go after Republicans. It's not impossible. I know that, may, you know, this is just focusing on Hunter Biden, but it's not impossible that that's going to be the pattern. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Thanks. Peter. Let's go to Matt. Yo, Mike. Great work on, uh, dude, it's just insane that, I mean, we always say the same things, but it's insane that no one talks about the, like just the size of the NDA and the provisions that could lead to more costly behavior. Like, yeah. I like that you, you know, kind of pushed Ilhan a little bit. Like, it was what she said wasn't that bad, but like, you know, like that that hundred billion to Taiwan could turn to you know, a trillion pretty quickly, or you know, the death of all humanity. As my father well, right. I mean, what you're referring <laughs> to is that Elon Omar did say that she was going to vote against the NDAA, and she did vote against it. But her only real rationale for it was that the top line figure was, you know, egregiously high. In comparison right. to expenditures on other, you know, social services or whatever, they're not a fine enough point to make, but it also, you know, elides the actual substantive provisions of the bill that should also maybe right. raise some concern. It's, it's as though she has no interest in actually examining any of that stuff or even ability. And that wouldn't surprise me because, you know, she's been a very stalwart defender of Ukraine policy at this point. Yeah, so, I mean, dude, what, we don't have any really... reason, real, real reason to think that Sorry. she's concerned right. substantively with much of what's in there. No, I think it was you that showed that video, but the one where she starts playing the refugee card about Ukraine, which she's been yeah. pretty good, you know, if you remember uh, some other issues that we don't to bring up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, we, we, okay. we, we might get canceled. Uh, that's still it's the remaining cancellation um, threat. 
just don't go lower than 5.5. We need to. <laughs> yeah, I know you've been going down. We need to maybe build it back up. I think it was 6.5. Um, okay. That's a dark joke. Um, Royal Hilberg would be canceled by that standard. I'm just glad, you know, that like my pet issue, the CEOs of all these companies now are like women and Gentiles and like Irishmen. So all these military industrial complex companies. So no one can throw this shit at me. <laughs> like I'm going, you know, whatever. Um, anyway, so question. Did you see this? I didn't have time to watch it today. This Arnon thing, or Arnon posted it, but um, something from this IRR thing. Who who posted it? Yeah, R R Arnon Bertrand. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, know I, I saw I saw it. Did you watch it? I, I don't know. Yeah, what, <laughs> no, I didn't see no video. Yeah, I didn't have time to watch it either. But this thread is incredible. So, like, what are the implications? Of like ninety two percent. Well, what is he saying here? Ninety two percent of airspace and defense is controlled by Americans in the world, right? Oh, I saw some stupid tweet where he's like, "Is it fair that ninety three percent, or like some percent of the world's profits are being extracted by America?" And just like, yeah, you know, that was his issue like, with it. <laughs> it sounds like a <laughs> yeah, communist. I mean, he just he doesn't know how any of this works. Yeah. I mean, no, there's no, like so no. much you don't you don't know where to even okay. start with that. Yeah. Yeah, that, I remember thinking that was very dumb. So the question is, though, is though are these statistics just intrinsically stupid? Like, because there's obvious implications of ninety-two percent of the world's aerospace and defense being controlled by American asset owners, and by the way, eighty-one percent of the world's media being controlled by eighty American asset owners. Or is that just like are these misleading? Because like Americans, you know, we pay crazy amounts for. I don't know. You know I mean, our like media, our, China our is like government owned and like they don't right. have private yeah. media. Uh, I don't know. But the wealth thing was stupid. I don't know about these other, but like, you know, this is like not the, you know, it's just not the right way to like America invests a lot. Like, you know, wealth, first it's not, I mean, it's not wealth. It's, it's like, right. It's like spending on defense, which the U S uh, basically uses to defend other countries. I mean, that's part of it too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I saw the thread. Let me, let me, let's let me look it up. That I just look at. How do you? No, because I'll read it. Yeah, what are you looking it up? Because what's the saying, highest? The, the one that the are... one that stood out to me though that might be interesting. To start with, these numbers are mind blowing. It shows what percentage of global profits of select Im- industries and of oh, American profit pockets. of the industry. Okay, that's just that's. I mean, that's just stupid. Like the U.S. Yeah, has yeah, a right? lot of money and spends a lot on defense. We know that it's like it's the U.S. taxpayer paying for it that makes them profit. Who's paying? No, 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 not that. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, the direction he brought it was stupid. But I'm saying, like, these numbers don't apply. Like, the media one, 81%. Like, don't imply that. Because, you know, we've seen a lot of it, especially in Western media, everyone being on the same page on the current thing, right? But I don't think that that's this 81% number. you're, You're convincing me that my instinct was right here. Um, what is it? Eighty-one percent of the media of like the value, like the 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 sort of the monetary value of the media is the United States. Is that sort of the idea? Um, what does it say exactly? Eighty-one percent. It shows. He's Can you spell something. this guy's name for me again? I can't find it. Hey, sorry. Yeah, sorry. The, 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 the video. I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember how to spell his stupid name. It's R, no, it's at R, letter R, N-A-U-D, Bertrand. All right, got it. Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, like, if, if, this, if this control is based off of, 
like profits from selected industries, you know, like it could, that doesn't mean that like, you know, there could be like one profitable media industry that Americans own that generates most of the profits in the world. This is a imply influence. My, my question is influence, not, uh, you know, the capital critique here. Yeah. I mean, even like just to think about it in terms of like profit. So therefore like you've done, you've extracted something or you've like stolen something. Like maybe the businesses are better run. Like a lot of third world businesses like suck and lose a lot of money. Like it doesn't really tell you some are media state run, right? They don't have profits at all. So Where's the, I can't find it. I can't find this thread, but no, it doesn't seem like. Well, I'm on his profile now, and this is sort of a change of subject, but this is an amazing thing that I saw he retweeted. This is a guy um, who's the chief economist of the IIF, which I guess is the Global Association of the Financial Industry. And he says, this is from today, the bottom line on Western sanctions, the Russian ruble is stronger than ever, while Ukraine (laughs) has had to devalue and will weaken more. Our sanctions carved out Russian energy, giving Putin a huge energy windfall, and the G7 oil price cap at $60 does little to stop that. Which okay. is not, uh, which is a total tangent in that relevant. And also your point, I'm sorry, but it just, it just stood out I just, to me. I just found this thread. It's like the numbers, the percentage of global profits of select industries end up in American right. pockets. Aerospace and defense, 92 Like, okay. Pharmaceutical, 50%. Like, the U.S. provided, like, the vaccines that, like, you know, it's like the U.S. Look at the innovation in American uh, biotech. I mean, that's not surprising. No, 50%. no, I agree with it. That's stupid. His point is stupid. He's making yeah. these numbers. So which point, at which point are you most interested uh, in? No, I'm interested in, do these numbers imply that, like, a lot of things are controlled by, like, Americans and American companies? Or is it just like, you know, we're a rich company? The American pro- companies are very successful and profitable. I mean, that's what it implies. Right, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So, like, 81% profits in the media, right? That doesn't mean that, like, what I'm thinking it could be. It doesn't. Like, 81% of the things you read in the world come from America. Like, no. Yeah, no, like, I know you that. Can have, yeah. You can have yeah. the, the Chinese... You could have the Chinese Communist Party, you know, their their media, they make no profits because they're, you know, they're state-owned right. or they're state-affiliated, and, like, they reach more people than America. They don't have profits. Like, it's, it's, it's meaningless. It's just stupid. It's just communist thinking that says profits are, like, exploitation. Right, yeah, yeah. It's just a... It shows what percentage of the global profits of select industries end up in American pockets. And media is 81%. <laughs> American I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I just... <laughs> what if just America makes all the pants in the world? <laughs> right. So anyone percent of pockets are in American pockets. Yeah, <laughs> we got the pocket industry on lockdown. Yeah, Kirk. Hey, Mike, I'm sorry for that joke earlier. It was, it was meant in good fun. Oh, no. I mean, I took it all in good fun. I love yeah. Holocaust humor. Oh, you made Holocaust joke? That's funny. Um, all right, Matt. Thanks. Take it easy, dude. This is fun, Taylor. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Matt. All right, uh, Jim. Hi, Michael. Hey, how's it going? I loved your interview today with Glenn Greenwald. It made me laugh. My energy? Yeah, he posted the one about Yoel Roth on his Rumble. Oh, yeah. It was on his uh, <laughs> Rumble show. Um, I'm going to be like a contributor of some kind, uh, allegedly, to that show um Man, once it's officially launched pro- you're just a content provider aren't you you're i don't know i mean I, I i feel like i'm always inadequate in my content production like i'm on a bit of a substack lull at the moment i don't know why i'm hoping, hoping to get something done and soon 
Yeah. He all really outed himself as a total panty waste. So it was just delicious to watch you guys deconstruct because it, it made you, me laugh. You know why I'm on a con- on a Substack low? It's because w- there's so much like <laughs> excitement on Twitter constantly, and I almost feel like it's justified to expend that kind of energy on Twitter, given the huge amount of energy on Twitter at the moment. I don't know. Like I was on a I was on a Twitter Spaces with Musk where I was able to talk to him. I saw that. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. You know, I um, I did six weeks of hardcore citizen journalism where I was only paid just you know a few hundred dollars from my Substack subscribers to do this work, and I covered a Utah story that um, was kind of near and dear to my heart. And after these six weeks, my Twitter was permanently suspended, and um, then Brandy Zadrozny, that NBC News propagandist, disinformation expert, was brought in to debunk some of the work that I and some others did on this story coming out of Utah. And so you've got when were you banned? When when did the ban actually come down? Was it before uh, it was or after like Musk took the, over? Oh, it was the end of the. And story. what's the what's the story? Oh, it was before. What's the story? My point is is that there's all these kind of like lesser known journalists like like me who i don't really have a huge following or anything like that but some of us were also deplatformed in this kind of sweep and i'm looking forward to finding out who did that because the the people who i was outing in this series of of posts i did on my Substack, and i put a link in the chat uh were very visible high profile people in the state of utah so i'm wondering if they had some power to go in and say hey you know get her gone we can't have these people on Twitter and I I'm anxious to to get my my Twitter what did you what did you expose uh, I was doing a story on this um prosecutor David Levitt who was outed as a human human trafficker oh yeah and, a prosecutor state prosecutor yeah well he was a county prosecutor but he is basically you know admitted in this press conference that he was doing some really really bad stuff. And one of his close friends was arrested. So there's already been one arrest in the case. And we're wondering, you know, the journalists who are covering it, we're wondering if there's going to be any more. The state sheriff said, yes, we're, you know, we're definitely going to be doing some more arrests. These are high profile. And Brandy's of whatever her name is. She said that's misinformation is, and they kicked you off. Yes, it was. She called it a satanic panic. And this sheriff, Mike Smith, who was prosecuting these cases, is a QAnon sheriff, and huh. she was, you know, just using all this really extreme hyperbole. This sounds like fun. Can you? <laughs> well, I mean, you you might be even more screwed because apparently there was a QAnon a, a QAnon coup that was just reported oh, in Germany. Yeah, she was all over that too. See, it's these QAnon people is trying this, to overtake the, the thing, government. Jenny, you put in the you put in the chat. Brandy's I just put in the chat and I, yeah. I rejoined her to Brandy's article. Okay, I'll find it. But I, um, I made a movie sharing some of her video and, you know, yeah, kind of fun. pushing okay. back because she said she was coming after the randos on the internet who were covering the story. And, you know, oh, it's so this... brave to go after the randos on the internet. That's really taking it to the power. I know. I mean, I'm not even paid. You know, I I just have a few subscribers on Subtech, and I'm I'm writing this these stories. Well, that's the most arrogant conceit topic. of those people, like Brandy and Ben Collins, and you know, a handful of others, like these tech reporters. 
they really do incessantly go after like the least powerful people in society or people who are nowhere like incredibly low on the power rankings simply because they can claim that if they're responsible for quote misinformation that makes them dangerously powerful to the point that it warrants like the full-time investigative scrutiny of NBC News. Well, that's what cracks me up about her video report. It's all this dramatic music and, you know, she's the expert and she's going to come in here and tell everybody the facts. And it's like she could not even bother to report that one of these people was arrested. And, you know, there is so much there there with this story in terms of victim statements and people coming forward. And it's like she she just whisks it all away with that magic brush. This is a QAnon thing. And I'm like, I'm sorry. You know, it's not that simple. Or even if someone has, I mean, I, don't, I haven't delved into the substance really of what you reported on, but even if somebody has criticisms or complaints about it, fine, air that out in a rational way rather than automatically resorting to this like hyper alarmist interpretation where it's just dangerous or harmful and needs to be immediately censored. I mean, that's the leap that they take that is so preposterous. I don't mind people having criticisms of reporting or even, you know, questioning whether it's legitimate or whatever. I mean, but that can be sussed out through rational interchange. But that's not what... Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about it. Let's have a debate. Let's really look Jenny, at the Jenny, I clicked on your link and I don't see an article. I just see a headline and then a link to two different articles. Am I yeah, missing I, something? No, it's... If you go click to those other things, you'll see the link to Brandy's. I mean, I can go get Brandy's actual article and share it too in the in the chat. Uh, she's an expert but, on disinformation. So there's the other thing, but what, I mean, I would just want I just want your original article. Eh, I'll figure well, it out. I wrote I wrote hundreds of oh, substance wow. posts, so okay. it's it's a really deep dive on the story uh-huh. on, on my Substack, but um. Uh-huh. She she just thought with her one NBC article, she could just whisk all that away. And then there were people, okay. the last American vagabond who are covering it and a couple of other Substack people really covering it well. And it, it wasn't just me alone. You know, it was a bunch of other people. And then they sick this law agency on us, sending us cease and desist letters in um, certified mail, threatening us as journalists. And uh, one of these guys is going after this group because they're federally funded and they're like this is absolute violation of our first amendment rights as journalists for free speech and so that was beautiful to see but this story is really big and i think once once it really breaks people are going to be shocked at who's involved all right well uh thanks jenny i'll uh, i'll take a look at it and i hope you get some of the transparency that musk ostensibly promised around reasoning behind these bannings and deamplification and so forth. Oh, I am looking forward to it, I assure you. Alrighty. Okay, um, Amia, you are up. Hey, everyone, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, Michael. Uh, I think we spoke in a previous episode a few weeks ago, and um, hello, Richard, for the first time. Hi. Oh, yeah, I remember you. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to go back to the uh, conversation about the Twitter files. And um, essentially what I wanted to do was share my perspective uh, that I got from having conversations with a lot of people about the content of the Twitter files. And, you know, most of the people that I interacted with were 
at least initially very dismissive of the importance of what we've learned, or at least that was their instinct. Um, and, you know, there were, there were a lot of sort of what I deemed unserious arguments, um, often resorting to the tone or how Musk sold the documents or, you know, what was about to come. Um, you know, some criticized the amateur, uh, amateurishness of the execution, namely the fact that uh, Taibi posted his revelations on uh, Twitter thread as opposed to some long-form discussion. Obviously, we know why now. Um, but, you know, the the main question to me was one which you articulated, uh, namely whether there was any lack of editorial in independence here. Um, yeah, and, and then a lot of these sort of partisan and there's no considerations. And, and just to be clear, there's no evidence that editorial independence has been abridged at all as a function of right. these conditions. Right. I, I, I think if the conditions that Barry Weiss laid out today are the only ones, then um, I, I think that only bolsters the uh, importance of this. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I think there were various other arguments about, you know, just, just this kind of what I viewed as tribal um, uh, things to pick about Hunter Biden or, you know, the importance or lack thereof. Um, and, and also this question about, you know, how are conspiracy theorists going to use the revelations that came out here to justify whatever they want? And, you know, I find this facetious because the only question really that a journalist should be asking is whether these documents are in the public interest and are they accurate? Right. Um, so, so those are kind of the unserious arguments. But um, I, I was grateful to a couple of people who I think, um, who I know very well and who I believe argued in good faith. And it gave me some lens into how other people are thinking about this versus how I view this. Um, so, so maybe let me just give you a summary of kind of, you know, what, what points they were citing to kind of dismiss this uh, revelation. Um, so, so the first argument I broadly saw was are these people, regarding the... Are these people you know in yeah. your personal life, or are they like media adjacent, or you know, can you just characterize uh, Sure, yeah. I, I would say these are mainly uh, people who are in academia or the technology sector, largely highly educated people um, who are in science or tech. And, and, okay. and that's sort of... That makes sense. Um, Oh, yeah, Myself as well, so um, those are the people that I naturally meet. Right. Um, okay, so so I think I think argument number one that I kept hearing was, you know, if, if you look back to the points that Taibi was making in his uh, first edition of the Twitter files, um, there were some conversations around the First Amendment. I think I think Ro Khanna was uh, conveying some concerns about the First Amendment, and and by the way, I I, I do think I generally thought Rokan that came across fairly well in that exchange, um, more so than I might have thought before that. Um, but there was this sort of uh, kind of curt dismissal that, oh, okay, whenever the First Amendment comes up, you know, people are stupid, they don't understand that private companies are not bound by the First Amendment, and, you know, this discussion is just dumb. Um, so, so that was kind of the line of reasoning that I heard. and. 
you know, my response to that was mainly twofold. I mean, first of all, I don't think that should preclude a discussion about what should be the case on these platforms and what level of speech uh, should be appropriate. It's also nonsensical, by the way. I mean, not that it matters. It's sort of a side point. But the idea that under no circumstances are private firms ever bound by the First Amendment, it was just nonsensical. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's uh, extremely extensive case law which shows without question that in many instances, private firms are bound by the First Amendment. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. not as a general principle in the same way that the government is bound by it, but the idea that it's just not applicable at all in any context is just false. Right. And, and this will lead into the second point I make, but let, let me just finish finish one here. So, um, yeah, so I, I think in general it should not preclude a conversation about whether the current state of affairs uh, regarding speech on tech platforms is appropriate or not. Um, in other words, normative statements about this are different from legal statements. Um, and then, and then the second point that I raised was, you know, there is this question of whether there was possible coercion here, uh, from the government or, or state actors, right? And, I think it's generally the case based on Supreme Court precedent that if there is a level of coercion here, then um, such an element would lead to a First Amendment violation being determined. And, you know, I, I, I think the other aspect here is I, I don't know that coercion is definitive here based on what I've seen. Obviously, it's somewhat up to the courts to decide this. Um, but making a determination on this can also be somewhat complicated because uh, generally the the um, relationship, I would say, between industry and Washington is quite complicated, right? It lives in this uh, atmosphere of, you know, various actors needing certain legislative, uh, ha- having certain legislative requirements or regulatory requirements. And, you know, there's always this kind of element of, subtlety where someone might retaliate against you if you don't do what is expected, right? So I, I think these kind of things can often get complicated. Um, so, so I think that's, that's point number one regarding the First Amendment. Well, right, and I just think that the people who attempted to cursorily dismiss any kind of First Amendment infraction or discount the idea of any conceivable government coercion, did so um, uh, fallaciously because they used the idea that there was no evidence, according to Taibbi, of direct government intervention or exhortation as uh, connected specifically to the decision to ban the New York Post article um, as to mean that there was no government coercion at all in any respect. And I mentioned this before, but I would love Mm -hmm. to see potentially – um, Yoel Roth, like under oath or giving testimony somewhere where he were made to explicate what was actually conveyed to him and what he chose to do, to do tangibly over the course of the weekly meetings that he said that he had with the, uh, the FBI, uh, DHS, and quote-unquote intelligence community where they expressly warned him according to Yoel Roth's own uh, deposition – or uh, you know, sworn uh, like affidavit um, about the uh, apparently imminent emergence of Hunter Biden-related "quote unquote" hack materials. I mean, 
maybe you could argue that it wasn't coercion because Yoel Roth was already primed to want to do their bidding, but that's still a mm-hmm. pretty clear governmental involvement in matters that have sort of bearing on speech. So, you know, that's still an open question as to what definitively happened there and definitely not, I think, um, warranted to be so smugly dismissed by some of these media people. Yeah, spot on. Yeah, so uh, moving on. So so the second main argument that I heard from the people I spoke to, the ones who were, you know, actually engaging with me, was this notion that, okay, this whole thing is a nothing burger, and okay, maybe these documents are all accurate uh, and whatever, but, you know, they don't mean much because they don't demonstrate a definitive um, element of malice on the part of Twitter executives. Um, and and basically, they were positing that this was just a normal type of situation where they overstepped their bounds and were too aggressive to moderate content. Now, I, I don't know what constitutes a normal situation of this sort, because um, to me, the fact that they took unprecedented action without having any factual basis, as, as you mentioned, um, to me, that's problematic in itself. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I did grant them, look, I, I think it's possible that some of these executives were not guided by malice. Um, you know, it, it's quite plausible to me, based on their worldview, that they do view certain speech as dangerous and, you know, they think this is something that will result in uh, the apocalypse or something, you know. And, you know, obviously, like, I think there's, you know, th- this is one of those things you can speculate one way or another. And I, I generally don't like to ascribe intentions to people and, and try to base some argument on what I think this person is thinking, right? Um well, I mean, I, I mean, I agree in that it would be surprising if these people were guided by conscious malice. That's almost never what people are consciously guided by, right? But it almost doesn't matter because if they're right. if the fruits of what they're consciously motivated by result in, you know, ill-advised action or action that has deleterious effects, then the intentionality is sort of not particularly relevant. I actually do think that people who are inhabiting these sectors of society where they take it as an article of faith that speech produces this acute harm or misinformation is apocalyptic uh, as a problem. They probably are uh, mostly sincere and that's actually the issue. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 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 exactly. And, and that was the point that I made, right? Um, I, I grant you this is, this is possible, maybe even probable that, they're not guided by malice, but it's irrelevant, right? I mean, the, the concerns that I see are, you know, uh, somehow independent of what their guiding motivation was. Because to me, the question that comes up uh, based on what Taibi revealed in, uh, in, in the first installment is, uh, you know, what was the relationship of Twitter execs with the national security state? Right. And at the very least, I think you could make the claim that they showed an inordinate amount of deference to 
various claims made by national security state actors, um, you know, with, without any real factual basis or evidence. And, uh, you know, if, if it's worse than that, then there might be an element of, uh, taking actual directives from them or, you know, co- coercion as we discussed previously. But, right. but at and the very exactly- least, there is this deferential aspect. Yeah, and that's exactly what I would want to see, or what I would hope would be fleshed out in greater detail by virtue of these Twitter files um, being released. So right. hopefully, in the in additional installments, we'll get a bit more of a bit more color as to how exactly those directives, if at all, were issued, or how certain advisories were processed and then translated into sort of enforcement action by Twitter. And so on. So it's going to be maybe subtle in certain respects, but definitely worth um, assessing carefully because, you know, it's probably not going to be the case in most instances that government coercion of the kind potentially at issue here is going to be communicated through like a a blunt, um, unambiguous exhortation via email. I mean, that's probably not how it works most of the time. Yeah, it's usually subtle um, or backhanded, right? yeah, Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, yeah. Mia. Uh, good contributions and uh, food for thought, definitely. Um, and we'll talk to you again I, I, soon. I just, had, I just had one more yeah. one more point, if okay. I if, yeah, if I may. Um, okay. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I, I I think generally the thing that that broke through to uh, people in the end, and and I got people to actually think about this or reassess where they stand on this, was actually these uh, statements of uh, Yoel Roth. Um, in, in some sworn deposition, I think it was made to the Federal Election Commission. Um, I, I think you highlighted this passage as well, um, where he basically admitted to uh, have taken weekly briefings from the DHS and the FBI. And, you know, w- once I pointed this out to people, they were like, are you sure this is true? You know, is this not a conspiracy theory? And and then I, no, I think the URL, several people. Exactly. <laughs> Right, exactly, and 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 then I got people to actually agree. Okay, th- this seems important, but but somehow, why don't I know about this? Um, and I guess I guess that's a function of uh, just the negligence of the mainstream media in reporting. Uh, what are the important aspects here? Yeah, okay. I mean, if I if I were involved in the editorial process with Taibi to produce that initial thread, I might have included that as. Yeah. Context. Um, but, you know, I also accept that these productions are like iterative, right? I mean, they're not meant to be a comprehensive, fully contextualized, um, like, reproduction of the full story here. Um, so. Yeah. And then I think it, today's it, revelation. Make, cer- make certain also- allowances for certain incompleteness. Yeah. And then, and then I think today's revelations also, um, you know, I, I think there were people who were legitimately bothered by, for instance, what happened to uh, Jay Bhattacharya, the Stanford professor, and right. where he was literally uh, added to something that they call a blacklist. I mean, that's not even a pejorative being used to describe what Twitter did. That's what Twitter actually called it in its own internal system. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Amia. We're going to go to uh, Andrew here. Andrew, you're up. Hello. So one of the things I've been hearing from a lot of left wing people that are kind of like Sam Cedar type lefty. Oh, I'm sure they have brilliant insights. 
Well, it's this idea that we can't, no one should be even mildly disturbed about the presence of Jim Baker and his position at Twitter and what he apparently did and his history with the FBI, and that this should be treated as like, well, he can't just, he just can't work anywhere now, huh? Because he worked at the FBI. He's just a man with a good career. And it's like, yeah, he's just trying to do his job. (laughs) Yeah, he's doing his job. And it's, to me, you know, you can't make, any direct accusations necessarily just because Jim Baker worked there, but am I incorrect in understanding that he was involved with passing on steel dossier nonsense to somehow forward it through the courts or something? Yeah, he was the conduit for David Korn, you know, the totally disgraced reporter, to basically concoct a last-minute intervention in the 2016 presidential campaign because once David Korn gave the Steele dossier that he got from Glenn Simpson and the Fusion GPS people, and this is getting into the weeds of Russiagate now, but David Korn basically shepherded through the FBI this Steele dossier, or at least portions of it that hadn't been submitted to the FBI yet, and then you know through Baker... And then reported on the FBI having the Steele dossier as though that legitimated the Steele dossier. And so one of those big breaking stories initially that was meant to like derail Trump, you know, just days before the election was that, you know, the FBI FBI was investigating this Alpha Bank link where, you know, the Trump organization was pinging – pinging email uh, data back and forth between this Russian uh, back to and forth between a, a Russian bank. And this was supposed to, you know, be evidence of potential collusion between the Russian state and the Trump campaign. It was just like the, this was the genesis of a lot of the nonsensical speculation that gave rise to Russiagate. Yes. And, and, and James Baker was right at the center of it. Just and doing so now he's plucked right into Twitter in 2020 to, among other things, apparently be involved in content moderation decisions. And then, according to Musk and Taibi, at the last minute, as of this past week, he's apparently surreptitiously vetting the materials that are being provided to Taibi and Weiss. And this doesn't so raise if you're going to say, if you're Sam Cedar and you're just going to smugly declare <laughs> that nobody should find anything at all untoward or even like worthy of further, you know, consideration about this, then, I mean, I don't think that your perspective is particularly reliable. How dare they call themselves the resistance? I mean, come on. Like, the principle here is to ignore any kind of potential malfeasance or conflict of interest, because apparently now the left likes the FBI. Is it good that we have, like, intelligence officials working for CNN and Twitter and, you know, should they be working for all big tech and media? Is this the idea? And that we should just assume they're doing their job now? Like, that's the progressive left. And if you find anything noteworthy about it, you're the crazy one. (laughs) Right. And to me, it's like, okay, you can't make direct accusations, like I said, but the second thing I was going to say about this um, being that there's – Sorry, it slipped my mind, but the um, 
Well, I guess it's it's just amazing to me that this is the position the left has come to, and uh, I don't know really how to challenge it because. Well, the position that they've come to is they don't like Elon Musk. They don't like the idea that Elon Musk is validating what they regard to be, you know, incorrect right-wing grievances about how social media platforms are managed. And that's their sort of operating principle. So everything else flows from that. So you can't expect them to impartially analyze any of this information, really, because they're always going to go back to their starting point, which is that they don't like Elon Musk and they don't like anybody who would you know, be, quote unquote, collaborating. Yeah, the last thing with Musk on this the, I remembered it was I was going to say the last thing Jim, Jim Baker liked on his Twitter profile that I could see was uh, some tweet from a, a, a satire about all the different things, all the spoofs that were made when Elon messed with the verification system and Eli Lilly uh, had that parody happen. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah, I, I was vaguely aware of that happening. I didn't yeah, even know James so Baker had a Twitter account. I have to look it yeah, up. Yeah, I was curious because uh, Michael Malice was making fun of him saying, uh, change your Twitter st- change your Twitter handle. It's misinformation because it still says that he works for Twitter. Well, he's been exited. So I found that amusing and I stumbled upon his thing. And I just found it interesting that the, his first and last like in like years is this thing about uh, basically s- satirizing the dangers of Elon's approach. So he's, it's really just interesting that, and this happens like, you know, he's working there. Elon's going to purchase this and change everything. And he's kind of subtly mocking him on Twitter by liking this stuff. And then it ends up, he's screening this stuff, but no, he's doing his job and we shouldn't be worried about it. Even if it's the FBI's, you know, once an FBI agent, always an FBI agent. It's like they, they think that they are only motivated by pay and that these people don't have any ideology or, you know, conflict of interest. It's, it's truly insane. Yeah. And the former general counsel of the FBI would not be in touch with colleagues about things. That's the other thing is that in the, in the future, I think that's what the Twitter files are going to come out with is that I'm hoping it's going to, like you said, sh- shed some light on that. And who would be the conduit there? Exactly. Jim Baker, maybe, you know, it's like, <laughs> is that a problem? It, it, what if FBI headquarters around San Francisco are communicating with Jim Baker is that a problem? Well, they're just all doing their job, and he doesn't work at the FBI. He's just talking to people at the FBI. I could totally see them saying this. Yeah, everybody's just instantly doing their job, and you know, big bad Elon Musk is trying to penalize them for you know, doing just an honest day's work. Right. Anyway, so this is yeah insane to me, and uh, I just thought it'd be worth bringing to light, and uh, I, I hope that it reveals more light on this because that's what we need to know about if there's anything else. And they did say some Glenn's. Someone said something it might have been deleted, so it wouldn't be surprising if they used indirect methods like Slack for some of this stuff where it's self-deleting. You know, anyway. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, uh, Alex, you're up. Yes, hello, Michael. Um, I guess it's to circle back around with the um, Twitter files. Um, with especially with um, what happened to the um, with Dr. J, how much do you think that they? I mean, I guess it's just more pure speculation. Um, things that they're going to release soon, but about the um, misinformation campaign and 
how much credit, how much of a big blow do you think the misinformation has gotten if, with regards to Twitter? Um, I'm sorry, rephrase that. Can you just re- uh, re- restate that question? Alex? How much informate, misinformation, how much of a blow do you think this Twitter bombshell has done for like the misinformation campaign, especially with regards to Dr. J? Um, well, I mean, I definitely think it undercuts, or it ought to undercut anyway, the legitimacy of these policies constructed around the supposed dire need to curtail the proliferation of so-called misinformation because if Dr. J, which is a better way of putting it because I can't pronounce his last name easily, if he is wrapped up in this net of supposed misinformation violators, then the the term is just meaningless and that, that should have been obvious all along. But, you know, I've spoken to Dr. J. I mean, I know he's not, he's a careful person, right? He's not just going to be recklessly spewing out misinformation left and right to, like, do harm to people. And if he has an alternate perspective on COVID policy, why is it that Yoel Roth gets to unilaterally dictate that that alternate perspective constitutes harm and misinformation and therefore necessitates censorship? I mean, it makes no sense... Like even on the terms of what misinformation advocates or alarmists tend to kind of claim they're motivated by, so like you would hope that this would sort of shift the perspective of certain people who think of misinformation in these sort of histrionic terms. But then again, it's possible that they're so invested in that whole narrative that maybe nothing will dislodge them. And I guess I had a, another question for um, Richard. I, I did read your article yesterday about, uh, well, not, I read it yesterday about conservatism as an oppositional culture, with especially with Donald Trump, I guess with the past and um, using um, obvious scams. How much in common do you think that the um, right-wing scams have in with um, Black Lives Matter from the last two years? Richard, are you there? <laughs> Richard might have um, secretly logged off because it's gotten to the point where he, he might tune out. Um, yeah, so sorry. Richard might not be there to answer your question. I'll have to maybe save it for next week. I'll ask him next week. All right. All right. Thanks, Alex. Uh, John. Hey, how are you? Um, I wanted to... Uh, just quickly go into that whole, uh, real quickly, that whole Russian missile or the uh, Ukrainian missile into Russia situation, because I think it's um, it's worth mentioning like how strange the situation was in the in a broader context, and it would be good for everybody to keep their eye on it. So, but from like the right framework. So essentially, the missiles that went in there were old Soviet drones that were converted into a missile. All right, and they're not the type of vehicle that's like really promising as far as delivering a payload. It's not that sort of thing. So it's not something most people would keep their eye on. And in March, they tried to do this in Ukraine, and they ended up somehow sending it off 800, a minimum 800 miles away in the wrong direction, and it hit Ukraine. 
I mean, not Ukraine. It hit uh, Croatia. And you guys can look this up. There is um, this sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, I remember this. Happen. I remember this. Okay. So, so at that point, this is where America kind of stepped in behind the scenes and told Ukraine, listen, like, we're not giving you anything long range. Like, you're not responsible. This was crazy. You shot it over another country and you almost killed people in Croatia. All right. So then for somehow some reason they and were it landed to, in a populated area in croatia too. Yeah, it, wasn't, it, was it, the, it wasn't just like farmland or something no it was by the grace of god that people didn't die like it wasn't it wasn't even like it was a, a almost a huge catastrophe so now they send essentially the same thing which was almost certainly sent from ukraine shot from ukraine over into russia which now this sort of drone missile it has a straight trajectory okay so it's not something that has like can do maneuverability unless there's a super like you know sexy add-on to it. But if that was the case, there but would have on, to be hold Ukrainian on, hold on, Tom, one, one second because I was under the impression that within the past week or so they announced that they had finalized the testing of a new drone modification technology, so it wouldn't have been the exact same as what the drone was that ended up landing in Croatia, you know, in the spring, it's something else. Right. And, and with that, it, you're right. But with that, there's like other things. So like, for instance, like you can shoot it off and it would go straight trajectory, but then you could have Ukrainians in Russia closer to the target that could theoretically. Maneuver. Well, that's what, that's what the New, but, the New York times reported. That's what happened. There were special forces on the ground in Russia that maneuvered it. So now, but now you're looking at the situation where Russia has the best uh, like uh, air defense system in the world and they were tracking this thing so the then the question becomes well why didn't they blow it out of the sky so if it's on a straight trajectory or it's over let's just say civilian areas maybe they didn't want to have some sort of fallout where it hit people but that's still not usually policy you knock that thing out because they knew where the eventual was going to land like it was going towards like nuclear like bases and the reality of the situation is is well, that how, hold on how do we know that they just decided not to shoot it down i mean you say that Russia has the best air defense system in the world. Maybe that's true. I'm not exactly sure. But that means it's 100% foolproof? No, but I think that um, when you're looking at like the S-500 system, the way that it's presented to the world, not just through Russia, but even through the eyes of all the other countries, as this is about as good as it gets and certainly superior to everything else that every other country has by a long shot, and that if something from Soviet era technology, even if it had some add-ons, was within the war context going towards a base, that that thing should have been shot out way before it got there. Like it's a humiliating. And, and I'm, you know, listen, I'm not, you know, pro-Ukraine and all this, but this is like a big, big fuck up on the Russian side of things. Well, right. Like, and which isn't, and so, which isn't particularly surprising, <laughs> given right, their no. track. Right. And it also goes to show why they had a, a, a national like defense meeting that Putin called like within hours or like within the next day. I mean, listen, they're going to straighten it out. Like, they, but there's a lot of little parts playing into this. Like what like I what I would think is, is that they weren't taking that threat seriously, that the Ukrainians somehow snuck one in there, that the defense systems that should have taken it out didn't, which is troubling for from the Russian side of things. And I would assume that Russia called their American counterparts and were like, yo, what the hell? Because, like, this is now getting into the part where we could launch nuclear war over this. Like, this is not what's supposed to be happening, which is which I think is the reason why there wasn't more like media, um, you know, celebration of it, as opposed to maybe other efforts that you see an over the top celebration for, which are clearly less. I mean, that's like 
dude, they hit a freaking, they, they shot missiles into Russia. But you don't hear about it like that. So I well, think because, that because the watch U.S. It. government didn't celebrate it, at least publicly, right? They just denied direct operational involvement. It's not like they were saying, oh, this is a glorious triumph for the yeah, because trailblazing Ukraine military. They kind of just tried radar, to sort of, they tried to just kind of distance themselves from it. Because their radars had to have picked it up too. You know, so they wanted nothing to do with that. Like, that was crazy. Because you know like, what? Because, I mean, there's obvious evidence that these special forces operations that Ukraine is conducting are getting more and more brazen. I mean, look at what they did after, uh, look at what the U.S. did after the um, car bomb assassination of Dugan's daughter. They eventually leaked to the New York Times that, Ukraine special forces did it, and they had been reprimanded by the U.S. supposedly. So I think what you're seeing is more and more evidence that there's at least some recognition within certain sectors of the U.S. government that Ukraine is like an increasingly reckless client. But they're also in a bind where there's nothing they can do about it because they're not going to just withdraw support. Like, I've heard, I forget what the, the uh, military, like, technology, the system is, but when we're giving them, like, our, like, rocket, like, launchers, for lack of a better word, or our missile launchers, we're, like, making it so that they can't, they can't retrofit it to do long-range stuff, because they can buy the long-range missiles from, like, other countries, like, and stuff like that, but we have to actually, almost like when you uh, govern a, a go-kart or something to not make it go fast, like, we have a 100% knowledge that these people... It's like a guy that, you know, one of these creepy guys that if they, they their girlfriend breaks up with him, well, if, she, if I can't have her, nobody can have her type of deal. This is how it is with the Ukrainians. They're like, well, listen, if, we, if, this, if we're not going to win, then we're just going to blow the whole fucking world up. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Strange love. <laughs> so, anyway, that's all I want to say, but I want to uh, call in just to let people know, like, look at it from, like, you know, not just the, uh, you know, oh, my good God, there's missiles going in there or this, but just kind of, like, think it out. Because it, it's it's very strange how it wasn't it made more of a big deal. It's very strange that it happened. I think that it was an embarrassment, a real embarrassment to the Russians. I mean, it is. I mean, just think about it. If, if somebody had told you a year ago that a U.S.-backed military, which may or may not be operationally coordinated by the U.S. in this particular instance – Fired, you know, launched a drone strike against a nuclear, uh, a strategic nuclear forces base of Russia, you know, 60 miles outside Moscow or whatever it was. That would have been like mind blowing. Oh, yeah. And now and it just kind of it, it makes only a ripple. Yeah, I mean, I, but it's very, very like the, the pride, the pride of the Russian military is their air defense. So, like, to think that in Soviet, antiquated Soviet legacy technology could be retrofitted by a random Ukrainian, whatever, and shot and not be taken out is just unacceptable. Like, it's an unacceptable thing for that military. Now, it can be, it can be fixed. Like, I mean, they'll just retool stuff. And it's already happened a couple times, right? I mean, they, 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 they did successfully execute strikes on, um, Sevastopol. Is that how you pronounce it? The Crimean base? Mm-hmm. With seemingly similar drone technology. Yeah, but this is in the Russian mainland on a nuclear, like, pro- well, right. you know, yeah. so, like, I mean, you know, like, th- like, this is like, I don't know, you know what I mean? Utilizing their own, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, cro- it's crossing a threshold for sure. But anyway, like, I'll let you, you go. Great work as always, and um, I'll keep it up.
All right, thanks, John. And let's finally go to um, CR. CR, uh, I can't hear you. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, can hear you now. <clears throat> hey, how's it going? How's your night going? Pretty good. How are you? Eh, not too bad. Um, I was curious if, ah, man, I'm, <clears throat> I'm blanking on the, um, God, I'm trying to remember what, what publication did the art. Maybe it might have been an antiwar.com article. Uh, an article recently came out where, uh, shoot, now I'm also blanking on the country, but <laughs> the um, one of the rulers of the African country recently said that he's seeing our weapons in Africa now that that are coming through Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> I have to remember. Goddamn, I'm I got to look it up, so I, I can't really comment. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so apparently, I forget which uh, um, what leader, which country was there in Africa. He said that. He's seeing uh, um, on the black market there in Africa, in his country, our weapons that we gave to the Ukrainians are now showing up in Africa now. So, <clears throat> yeah, just one, one more kind of, you know what I mean, like another nightmare kind of thing to this whole situation I think a lot of people don't really uh, consider a lot. You know what I mean? It's that we're just flowing weapons, whether you, what, what, no matter what side you are on it, whether you're pro-Ukraine or pro-Russia or pro-peace or whatever, you know what I mean? I think we can all agree that guns ending up in other countries in the black market's less than ideal, right? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, and they're not going to even admit that there is any real lax oversight that could have led to that because that would then undermine, like, the sanctity of the mission, supposedly, um, but it just, and I know what you're talking about now that you mentioned it. I saw some report along those lines. Um, it would be nice to see a bit of a confirmation as like the chain of custody of those weapons or what have you. Um, but, uh, yeah, sorry, sir. I actually have to go at the, at the, uh, right now because I'm getting a, a phone call that I have to answer. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll look into that and maybe, um, 